the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, sisters and brothers, in the past few weeks, we have been studying the Beatitudes together, and we have been looking at the attributes, the qualities, the characteristics of the citizen of heaven. This is the person who is poor in spirit, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And today, verse 7, we see that they are merciful. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And since, therefore, we are looking at mercy, it is good to start with a definition. What is it that we mean? What is mercy? Well, I think a good definition is this. Mercy is compassion, which is shown to an offender who is in your power. Right? Mercy is compassion, which is shown to an offender who is in your power. And that definition has got three basic parts to it. There is a character to mercy, there is a context to mercy, and finally, there is the act of mercy, there is the power of mercy. The character is compassion, right? It is a, it is a disposition to kindness, it's a desire to show pity. The context is wrongdoing, right? It is compassion towards an offender. So in the legal sense, in the strict sense, it's meaningless to talk about mercy towards the innocent. Right? No, mercy presupposes guilt. It presumes that there is wrongdoing. And third, it is this context, the context of guilt, which shapes the act of mercy. And I want you to understand this very clearly. The act of mercy is the decision not to impose the punishment which the guilty deserve. Right? In other words, the act of mercy is the remission, the removal, the release from the penalty of guilt. So if you were to imagine a courtroom Mercy would not be shown in the verdict. Right? No, on the contrary, mercy actually presupposes that there is a guilty verdict. Now, in the court, mercy is not shown in the verdict, but in the sentence. It is shown in the decision of the judge not to impose the punishment upon the guilty or to diminish it. And this is where mercy, I think, is helpfully distinguished from grace. Right? Mercy and grace are two core components of the Christian faith, of the Christian message. But they are distinguished. Grace is that goodness which is shown in giving people what they do not deserve. Right? Grace is giving people what they do not deserve. Mercy on the other hand, is not giving people what they do deserve, right? Not giving them what they do deserve. So, for example, God could show Adam grace before the fall, and he did. God gave Adam freely, abundantly, all of these blessings. 
But God could only show Adam mercy after the fall, after his sin, after his transgression, and after the need for punishment. So to recap in kind of reverse order, the context of mercy is guilt and the demand for punishment. And the act of mercy is the decision not to impose that punishment. And ultimately, that act flows from a character of mercy, which is compassion, kindness, and pity. And so before we move on, we need to understand that this beatitude calls us to act in this way and to adopt this characteristic. Are we by nature merciful? If you consider those who are now in your power or who are below you in some way, it might be that you are very high and prestigious in the world. You might be a CEO, you might be in charge of a department, uh, you might be the head of a department in a company, and you have many people underneath you. Or it might be a lot more simple. You might just be a parent, and you are exercising control over your child, your small child. You might be looking after an elderly relative, and they are pretty much totally within your control. You might be behaving a particular way towards the Nepalese guard or the Bangladeshi worker where you live. In all of these things, is your action characterized by pity? Is it characterized by kindness? Do you seek to impose and to inflict the penalty when you are wronged in any way, however slight? Is transgression against you so severe that it warrants such a harsh and unyielding rebuke? Brothers and sisters, there is a warning to this passage implicit that if we are the citizens of heaven, then we will be characterized by an attitude of mercy and we will show forth that mercy. But the converse is also true. There is also a warning implicit here a warning which is made explicit by James and by Jesus, that if we are not merciful, if we are not kind, if we do not show compassion, if we refuse to be gentle to those who are under our care, then it may well be that we will be in danger of not receiving mercy from God in the end. So, brothers and sisters, what I hope to do is that as we examine mercy, as we examine in particular God's mercy and the weight of his mercy towards us, it will greatly enrich our attitude of mercy personally and our acts of mercy to those around us. So let us continue. Notice here in verse 7 that what we have is not merely mercy in the abstract, but it is divine mercy. It is the mercy which God himself dispenses. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And that mercy here is an act of God, and specifically that act which is reserved for the end of time. For if you look at all of the other blessings in this chapter, what do we see? The inheritance of the earth, the vision of God, the being satisfied, these are primarily not present blessings, but blessings reserved for the future and revealed in the kingdom of heaven. And so the promise here, the promise of this verse is that at the end, 
When God judges the living and the dead, you and I, he will exercise sovereign, divine mercy. And therefore, in the light of that, if we return to our definition of mercy from earlier, we will see that this verse presupposes two things, two very important things that we must understand about ourselves. One, that we bear a legal guilt before God. We are guilty. And two, we are therefore liable to punishment by God. Right? We bear guilt and we are liable thus to punishment. And both of those points need expansion. And both of those points are necessary to enrich our understanding. And both of those points are necessary to a true understanding of what it means for us to be merciful. And so first, our guilt before God is the consequence of breaking his law. We're guilty because we are lawbreakers. And that is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And the gravity of lawbreaking is the fact that it is God's law. It's not an ordinary law. It's not a national law. It is God's law. Listen to what James said in our epistle reading. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Now, why? Why is that? Why on earth should that be? I mean, if I was caught speeding this morning, I am not thereby charged for murder or for theft or for anything else. Why should it be that breaking the law of God in one point, one single point, one little point, however insignificant you may think, means liability for the entire law? Well, what James tells us is that our offense against the law is ultimately an offense against the law giver. It is an offense against the one who spoke the law, against God. So if you hear that verse again, what James says is this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it because he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Right? Do you understand the point? If you, if you transgress the law that says do not commit adultery, what you've done is you have disobeyed the person who said do not commit adultery. And it's, it's that key point. Sin is a personal act. It is an act by persons and against a person. God's person. So sin is not merely the rejection of a precept or a legal code, but it is a rejection of God himself. It is a denigration of his authority and a denial of his glory. And that is why sin is so serious. Because an act which might seem trivial to us, and it is profound arrogance, isn't it, really, to think that, that we can judge whether an aspect of God's law is trivial or not. That is not our position. But even if we were to concede such a point, you know, does it matter whether I watch that pirated movie? 
Does it matter whether I gossip about my family? Does it matter that I'm complacent at work? Those acts matter because God himself matters. If you want to put it more strongly, God himself is infinitely significant and weighty. And therefore, sinning against him, our desire even to sin against him, is also infinitely significant. It is important. It matters. And that is why the first sin, that that seemingly trivial act of eating the fruit, bears an eternal consequence. Because you cannot break God's word and reject God's law without rejecting God himself. It is infinitely significant because God is infinitely important. So as breakers of the divine law, we are guilty of an infinite offense. That's point one. And that leads immediately and necessarily to our second point, point two, as those who are guilty of an infinite offense, we are liable to an infinite punishment. We are liable to infinite punishment. Now, what I'm about to say is an unpopular subject in many quarters of the church, including our church, the Anglican Communion. Many are tempted to downplay or even to deny the reality of divine punishment, of hell. It is uncivilized. It is medieval. It is unworthy of God, even. Can you imagine that? Can you hear the supreme arrogance of that statement? That we should stand in judgment of what is or is not appropriate, is and is not worthy of God to do. If you think that, stop. You do not sit in judgment over God. God sits in judgment over you. That is the wrong way to think. It's a dangerous way to think. But the denial of God's punishment, whether it's internally in our hearts, the fool says in his heart there is no God, or whether it's institutionally in the church or out in the world, that denial is nothing new. What was the first denial in Scripture? What was the first deceit in Scripture? What was the first deliberate dishonesty? Can you remember? You will not surely die. Sisters and brothers, the denial of God's punishment is a wicked lie. It is an ancient lie. And it is a lie that will lead to the destruction of your soul unless you confront it with the truth. If you are saying to yourself in the secrecy of your heart, I shall not be moved. God has hidden his face. I can continue in my evil. That God neither sees nor hears nor cares. Then take heed. The God who made the ear does hear. The one who formed the eye does see. The Bible states repeatedly, 
And it shows consistently that God hates sin and that he acts decisively to punish sinners. Remember that this is the God who drowned Pharaoh's armies and destroyed Canaan's cities. The God who demolished Sodom and who devastated Jerusalem. Jerusalem, his own city, his own people for their idolatry and sin. And yet these events, as horrifying as they are, as they ought to be, they should shock us. They are but a shadow of the final reality. Because at the end of time, when God judges this world, when he calls the wicked to account, when he weighs their thoughts and words and deeds, when he perceives the secret intentions of the heart that are hidden to everyone else, and when he declares his verdict, then there will follow a final and irrevocable a permanent sentence, hell. When Jesus talks about the outer darkness, the darkness that is simultaneously a furnace of fire, when he talks about the place where the worm dies not and where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, he is referring to this place. And I want to caution you at this point because sometimes we hear those images uh, and because they are images, we are inclined to dismiss them, to think that it really isn't that bad, to think that what we have is some literary hyperbole, a little bit of constructive exaggeration. But that's the opposite purpose to those images. They're not supposed to diminish our sense of hell, but they are supposed to heighten and intensify our horror, not to give us an excuse to downplay it. Hell will be worse than the images. Because what hell is, it is a conscious torment of body and soul that is everlasting, that is without end. It is conscious because it involves an awareness of our guilt, the knowledge of our misdeeds, the knowledge that we have consistently spurned repentance, denied God's calls upon our lives. It will be the pangs of conscience forever, aggravating the sense of torment that we face. It will be the complete absence of God in blessing. You know, I sometimes heard this when I was back home, right? Hell will be all right because I'll be there with my friends. Obviously said flippantly, but what a stupid statement. In hell, there are no friends. Friendship is a blessing of God that we, that we enjoy now. When God removes his presence in blessing, that will cease to exist. All that will be left is mutual hatred and isolation. It will be terrifying. But it's not merely the absence of God in blessing, but it is his full presence in anger. It is the wrath of the Lamb that is there. 
And finally, hell is eternal. It is everlasting and unceasing because nothing less will do. Now, that seems very extreme, but I, I want to draw the connection now. I want you to understand the logic of hell. I want you to see why I have spent so long telling you about the infinitude of God's anger at sin and the great weight of the punishment that is beyond comprehension. Because it's only in the light of these things that we can understand mercy and thus behave mercifully. If you understand what I just said about sin, if you understand that it is an affront to God's person, then you understand that it is infinitely serious, right? Sin, any sin, is no small matter because God is not a small matter. And the extent of God's glory is thus the extent of sin's gravity. And it's for that reason, for that very reason, that the punishment of sin the penalty, the conscious torment of hell is without end. The punishment fits the offense. Now, all of that is a very long, but it's a very necessary introduction to the main point. And here I will be brief. Here is the main point. We are those who have received mercy. In the end, God will not impose upon us, upon you, that punishment, that terrifying punishment that you and I deserved. The reason I have labored to show the extent of hell's terror is because the extent of hell's terror is also the extent of God's mercy. And that mercy is infinite. It is a mercy that is supremely demonstrated in the person of Christ and in the cross of Christ. You have learned over the past, was it five weeks, six weeks now? That what we have here in the Beatitudes, the context is the exile, that, that God's people understood what it was like to suffer his punishment. They had rebelled against him, that God had taken them out of the land, that they are therefore suffering under God's wrath, and they were waiting. They were poor in spirit and waiting for comfort. They were mourning and waiting for help. They were meek and waiting for God to come. And all of these things are resolved with the coming of Christ. Christ is the answer to that exile, but he is more than the answer to Israel's exile. He is the answer to our exile, our exile from God's presence, our exile into the place of his wrath. It is in Christ, because he bears the penalty in our place, that we have the assurance that we will be forgiven. It is as Isaiah 53 says, that passage which we speak about so often, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, upon Jesus, was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. He faced the punishment of God, the penalty 
in our place. And so it is at the cross, that supreme act of mercy, the infinite act of mercy, as God gives the infinitely valuable person of his son, it is that act that is consistent with God's character of mercy, his nature. And those two things come together. Right? Our liturgy says the same thing. Actually, you know this already. You say it every week. You've memorized it. What happens when you come to the Lord's table and you take the, the memorial of Christ's death in our place? What do we say every week? What do we pray? We do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature, whose nature, whose character is always to have mercy. The table that we take from is a reminder of the cross and is a reminder of that threefold definition of mercy, of the context, the character, and the act of mercy. The cross tells us that we are guilty before God. We are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under his table. Therefore, we do not presume to come to his table trusting in our righteousness. We're guilty. Second, it shows us that the character of God's righteousness, he is by nature merciful. That is consistent with who he is. And that ultimately is shown in his action of giving his son to be broken for us and his blood to be shed for us. And so therefore... As those who approach God in Christ, as those who come to him before his cross, as those who are coming before him pleading and begging and asking for mercy, the mercy that is shown at the cross, the mercy that is so eagerly displayed by God, we cannot do so in a way that is not ourselves merciful towards others. We cannot spurn those we think are below us. We cannot despise the Nepali or the Bangladeshi worker. We cannot behave in a haughty way to those who are poor. We cannot be dictatorial and demanding of our co-workers or of our employees. We cannot be abusive to our spouse. We cannot be harsh and severe to our children. These things are inconsistent with the character of God. And to be godly is to be like God. God is merciful, therefore, be like God. Be merciful. Are you harboring anger? Are you cultivating resentment? Are you nursing your grief at the offense? 
Now, sometimes it is extremely difficult. You, you will not be able to achieve reconciliation for all offenses in this life. That will be beyond your control. But you can cultivate an attitude of mercy. It does not mean necessarily that the state should not impose a penalty as well. That may be appropriate. If someone has committed a grievous and criminal sin against you, it is not wrong that they face the punishment of the law. But it is incumbent upon us to seek to be merciful from our heart, to seek to show forth kindness, to seek to show forth compassion. For these things are consistent with God's character, consistent with what we ask and beg for from God, and consistent with what God has shown us plentifully in Christ and in his cross. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful Father, we thank you that though we were dead in trespasses and sins and worthy of your just and eternal punishment, Yet, because of the great mercy which you have shown towards us, that mercy which is in Christ, you have freely forgiven and pardoned our trespasses and sins. Grant, we pray, that we would know more clearly the weight, the gravity, the severity of sin, because you are a great, awesome, glorious, good, and perfect God. And grant, we pray, knowing the severity of our sin and the punishment that we deserve, we might know with greater clarity, with greater magnitude, the riches of your grace in Christ. And so we pray, knowing these things, that you might turn our hearts and work in us that we might show forth mercy to others. And we ask this, merciful Father, for your name's sake. Amen.